Right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to where Jeff just read from, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Uh, have you ever tried to fix a computer? And so you start trying to fix a computer, you start trying to install something, uninstall something, do something, and you only wind up making the problem uh, awful. And so then you have to call someone. So this happens sometimes in the office, and we have to call our IT guy. His name's Michael. And Michael has to come in and fix everything that we did wrong. He is someone who can actually help. We tried. We can't. We call Michael. He comes, and he helps. Or maybe you have, you know, maybe it's not a computer, maybe it's a car. And your brother-in-law overhears you talking about a car, and he's like, I'll bring it by. I'll take care of you, right? And you're like, okay, and you take it by and drop it off. Three weeks later, after playing some stupid tax, you take it to someone who actually can help. You thought you could help. You thought he could help. You now have to take it to someone who actually can help. That's kind of the author's argument in this section of Hebrews chapter 2, as he continues to be laying out evidence that Jesus is better, and specifically still in that section where Jesus is better than the angels. Like angels, they are good, they are powerful, but like me on a computer, like your brother-in-law on a car, there's a limit to what they can do. They can't do everything. And you need to go to someone who actually can help, who doesn't have a limit. And so the argument here is Jesus is better because he can actually help. And we will see multiple uses of that word help. He can help with the heavy lifting, sin, death, forgiveness, guilt, shame. Jesus proves that he is better because he alone can actually help with these. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of unpack for you why Jesus can help, and then specifically a few ways in this text alone that Jesus helps, all right? So three reasons why Jesus can help, and then four specific, like, big-ticket items of, of how Jesus helps, all right? And so why Jesus can help, the reason Jesus can help is because of who He is, and we've been seeing this for the the entirety of our time through Hebrews. We've talked about the fact that He is the Son of God, way back in chapter 1. That He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the world by the universe, or by the power of His Word. He's the heir of all things. That He's the Messiah, not a messenger. That He's the Savior, not a servant. That He's worshipped, not a worshiper. We've seen all of this already, and the the author has just been heavy on showing us who Jesus is and why He can do what He does. And so He's already given us this long list. I mean, this whole chapter, this whole argument, Jesus is better than the angels, is just a list of Jesus is this, and Jesus is this, and Jesus is this. And this morning we get three more. Three more that we need to see. And the first one is this. Jesus can help... Not just because he's God, but also because he's human. And so number one in your notes, write this. Jesus can help because he is fully God and fully human. Okay, fully God and fully human. Theologically, this is called the hypostatic union of Christ. And it is this 
that historically and today is like the may, a denial of one of these two tenets that is the like marker of all heresies. And so like Arianism is a denial of Jesus' full deity. You'll see this today in uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Gnosticism is a denial, among other things, of Jesus' humanity. That the physical side of things is bad. Only the spiritual is good. Most all heresies have a denial of one of these two things. But the truth of Scripture that's hard for our eight-pound fallen brains to understand is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. All right, Not a, like, get out of your mind if you have some sort of 50-50 split. He's part God, part human. No, no, no. He is fully God, 100%, and fully human, 100%. And I know that math doesn't work for us. But we have eight-pound fallen brains. The truth of Scripture always trumps logic, okay? He is fully human and fully God. And it's one of the reasons it can help. And so to prove this, this humanity that's being emphasized here, look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and there's some mixed metaphors that go in here between brothers and children, But they share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Okay, the same flesh, the same blood. Look down at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God. In other words, if Jesus was going to represent us before God, both in a mediatorial role like the high priest, but then also in like bearing our sins, he had to be human, fully human, just like us. He had to live the perfect life that none of us has lived, and he had to do it as a human Die in our place for our sin as a human. But then in order to defeat sin and death and Satan and hell and the grave, he also had to be fully God as well. And this is the wonder of Christmas. This is the miracle of Christmas. That God the Son, eternal, not created, always has been, Remaining what he was, as Athanasius put it, became what he was not. Remaining God, he became man as well. Jesus became man. And I think sometimes we minimize this. Like we so don't want to deny the full deity of Jesus that we wind up minimizing the humanity of Jesus. Now you need to understand When Jesus was 13, he had pimples. I'm not being sacrilegious. This is truth. If he went to Crystal and got gut bombs, he's going to have a tummy ache. Right? I mean, he is human, guys. We need to understand. Fully, fully human. It's not like, you know, as he eats the Crystal, it somehow transforms into like really healthy food. No, it messes with his system. Just like it does ours. If you like crystal, I'm sorry for you. (laughs) 
After a long, hard day of work, like you, he's worn out, right? Being a carpenter, swinging that hammer, building those chairs, those tables, those... He's tired. He gets tired. Like you. Unlike you, when he stubs his toe, he doesn't sin. <laughs> he groans. And it hurts. As it did when he lost his adoptive father. As it did when his friends betrayed him. He's human. He faces everything we face. And because of that, he can help us. Because he's not only God, he's also human. Remember, Jesus is human as well. Secondly, he can help us because he's the pioneer of salvation. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God created all things, right? In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Shall make the founder of their salvation. Now that word founder can be translated author, it can be translated forerunner, it could be translated pioneer. The idea is he blazed a trail. F.F. Bruce puts it like this. He is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation, along which alone God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man, created by God and for His glory, was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by His death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As His people's representative and forerunner, He has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. Sometimes people will talk about like, hey, if you could live at any point in history, when would you have wanted to live? And there's a couple of different times I might would have liked to live. One of them, though, this time period has some problems as well, but I would have loved, like, feel like I would have loved to be part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Like, I just, I love reading about it. I love that idea of going into uncharted territory, exploring the Louisiana Purchase, right? Finding a way to the sea. And so these men, they, they blazed that trail to the sea. And like the pioneers that came behind them, we follow a path blazed by Jesus. A path not westward, but heavenward. He went and did what we could not do and has made a way for us to go to heaven, to be given eternal life. And what is that way? The disciples asked the same question. Lord, we don't know the way. And so Jesus said, I am the way. I am the trail. I've blazed it and I am it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but through me. Jesus is the trailblazer we must follow to eternal life. And how did he do it? And what trail did he blaze through? He did it by suffering. Verse 10 again, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Jesus pioneered this trail by suffering. Like this was the wilderness that he blazed a trail through. It was suffered. He suffered and died in our place to make salvation and eternal life possible for sinners. And so it's not about us like being good enough. It's about Jesus made a way. He blazed the trail. And so it's not so much what we do as, what, as it is what Jesus did. And that's what this phrase, made perfect through suffering, is all about. It's about what he did. See, we get weirded out. We read this and we're like, oh, Jesus had to be made perfect? Like, I thought he was perfect. Isn't Jesus perfect? Why, why did he have to be made perfect? I thought he never sinned. Well, no, you're right. I mean, absolutely. He is morally perfect. He has never sinned. And so this is not talking about, make sure you need to understand this, this is not talking about being made perfect in morality. He already is that, always has been that, always will be that. But rather this is like actually perfectly carrying out the role for which he was born, the role for which he became human, the messianic role of being the suffering servant. He's done it. He actually has done it. It has been made complete, perfectly complete. Once it was like, not theory, but plan. Now it's been done. It's been perfected. It's been completed. That's what this phrase means. And so because of that, He can help us. Because He's the pioneer of our salvation. And really, in a lot of ways, He's also shown us how to suffer. Again, Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is also our example. And because of this, he can help us. But then the third reason, and maybe the most striking to me as I read this this week and prepared this week, studied this week, is this third one. Jesus can help because he is our perfect older brother. He is our perfect older brother. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, they are of one family. They have one Father. They have the same Father. Jesus is God's Son. And then those who believe in Him have been born again, not of the will of men, nor of the flesh, but of God. And so back to verse 11 then. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. They're of one family. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And then you look down at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like, give me that word, his brothers. And we read in Romans 8. Brothers. I don't think we talk about this one as much. I think this one makes us feel a little bit odd. Like we have this long laundry list uh, 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 you know, that defines the person of Jesus. And I don't think we talk a whole lot about the fact that Jesus is our older brother. Now for some of you that may not sound too exciting because you remember your own older brother, right? And my older brother pounded me. 
but I was still proud of him. Still am proud of him. And though he pounded me, I did not have to worry at all about someone else pounding me. He took care of those boys. He had my back. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a perfect brother, though. A perfect older brother. The brother who is always there for you. The, per, the, the brother who always has your back. The, the brother who can handle any bully, any problem, any circumstance. The brother you can talk to about anything and know he's still going to love you. The brother who loves you so much that he died in order to make you his brother. And then the one that can bring me to tears. He's not ashamed to call me brother. Like a lot of times I'm ashamed of myself. But Jesus isn't. I'm ashamed of what I've done. I'm ashamed of what I do. Like when I blow it again. And I know I did. And it's completely my fault. And I just turn my back on Jesus. To think that like not just at my best. But at my actual lowest. Jesus is not ashamed. To call me brother. Knowing every dark secret of our lives. Every wicked thought. He's still not ashamed to call you sister. To call you brother. What kind of love is this? Stated positively, not ashamed, would be, Jesus is proud to be your sibling. Jesus is proud to be your sibling. Like he's glad about it. Like it fills him with delight. And listen to me, not because you're amazing or because he needs you because you're not and he doesn't. But just because of his sheer goodness and kindness and grace and mercy. Like the fact that you are such a sinner only serves to highlight what a savior he is. The fact that you are so unworthy only serves to highlight how gracious He is. He's proud to be our sibling. He's not ashamed of us because we are part of the family. Like we've been adopted into the family. And so I just want you to soak in this for just a minute. Jesus is not ashamed to call you You personally. You with the week you had this week. You with the things you did yesterday. He's not ashamed to call you brother, sister. Not ashamed. That's why we call it amazing grace. And friends, this is also how we are to treat one another as well. We're part of a family. Family doesn't quit on one another. 
Family gives the benefit of the doubt. Family forgives 70 times 7. Family finds unity in Christ and Christ alone. We live this way as well. Always remembering Jesus is our perfect older brother. And friends, that is a... Like the dark night of the soul comes upon us all. And this truth is a powerful truth to cling to in those moments. Jesus is not ashamed to call us sister, to call us brother. And so Jesus can help us because he's human. Jesus can help us because he's the pioneer of salvation. Jesus can help us because he's our, per- our, our, our perfect older brother. And then the list of how he helps us is a mile long. But particular to this text, we see four. And the first one is this. Number two, letter A. Jesus destroys the, the devil. Jesus destroys the devil. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children, again, mixing some metaphors, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. All right? So Jesus destroys the devil. Now, now God is the one who determines when someone dies. Okay, that's clear throughout all of Scripture. But death only exists because of sin. And sin only exists because of the devil. And the devil hates you. And the devil wants to see you destroyed. And so your older brother has come to deal with this bully and destroy him instead. And this is some of that already not yet that we talked about last week. Jesus has already defeated the devil through his life, death, and resurrection, but he has not yet cast him into the lake of fire forever, but he will. And so Satan does prowl around today, seeking those he can devour, but listen, he prowls around with a giant limp. He prowls around with a heavy leash. The head of the serpent has already been crushed, but the tail still flopping around seeking to do damage. And yeah, I mean, you know what that looks like if you've ever chopped a snake's head off. And if you've ever chopped a poisonous snake's head off, you know you get close and it can still bite you. And that's like Satan. But he's largely been bound already. And his impending but not yet destruction is coming when God will cast him into hell where he will forever suffer eternal conscious torment under God's wrath. Hell is not Satan's like lair. It was created by God to punish Satan. That's why it exists. We who do not trust in Christ but instead follow the prince of the power of the air even unknowingly we're following Satan that's why hell is where non-believing people, souls, will be forever as well. But that not yet day is coming. He's already been defeated. He will be cast away. Jesus destroys our enemy, the devil. 
But he also helps by with another enemy. The enemy of death. Look at verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, right? He's human. That through death, this is how, the, this is how he destroys the devil, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, like through Jesus' death, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so again, like we talked about last week, Jesus has already defeated death. That happened when he rose again. And so we rest in that already truth, even as we hope in the not yet still to come truth when Jesus makes death go extinct, right? It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Death will be no more. And so that day is coming, but between then and now, Listen to me, Jesus has come to deliver us from the fear of death. The fear of death. And that's letter B in your notes. Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. I mean, just real practical for a minute. Believers, you have no reason to fear death. I get, I, I, I get like worrying maybe perhaps, being concerned about kids and family and what might happen after your death. I get that. Like with a child who has special needs, I pray that I live a long, 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 long time, right? I mean, in fact, I, I, I pray, and this is maybe hard, I pray that Eden lived a super long, wonderful life, but she dies a day before me or Sarah do. And then we die the next day. So I understand being concerned about what may happen after your death, but the actual moment of death, like that instant of death, what, like you have no reason to fear that. God will not leave you in that moment. In fact, there will be no nanosecond where He is not with you. The moment, like the, the moment, it have the second it happens, you're with Jesus. There's no break there. You, like, you are with Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And so for those of you who are in Christ, you have no reason to fear death. And not just because, like, what's on the other side, the eternal life that's on the other side, but Jesus has blazed this trail as well. Like, He's been through it. He was a human. He died. He's been through that. He knows what that's like, and he's blazed the trail. He's sanctified it. This is how his humanity has helped us. He's prepared the way. And we follow him in confidence to follow his trail. Nothing. I mean, we read it earlier. Romans 8. Nothing can separate you. From the love of God. Not life, not death, not powers, none, none of those things. You will never be absent from His lair, love, from His care. And it's that love, the love of our older brother, the love of our Savior King, that delivers us from the fear of death. Your perfect older brother has made a trail. He has defeated the bully of death. There will come a day when it is extinct. Don't live in fear of death. Jesus has made a way. 
and he will be with you. The third way we see that Jesus helps in this text, and this is the heart of the gospel, is this, Jesus makes propitiation. All right, letter C, Jesus makes propitiation. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's everyone who's of faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, he's human. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And so propitiation is the great big word that we've really been kind of talking about all morning, beating around the bush with it, that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross in our place for our sin, and in so doing, he absorbed God's wrath and he turned it into our favor. Like on the cross, you got the two things that are happening. Jesus is taking our sin, he's giving us his righteousness. Both of those things are, t- are happening. That perfect life, that sinless life he lived, he is crediting it to us. He's taking our sin, bearing the wrath, he's crediting his perfect life to us. And so in the sense of taking our sin, absorbing the wrath, Jesus is like the ultimate absorbing paper towel. The quicker picker-upper, right? (laughs) And you can use this as you're discipling your children. Seriously. Put some Kool-Aid down. Buy a good one, not a bad one, that really does absorb. This is like what Jesus... he, He sucks that. He absorbed it. It's no more. He has absorbed it in his body. John Stott puts it like this. It was God Himself who in holy wrath needed to be propitiated because He is just and we are sinners. We have sinned against Him. It must be paid for. It was God Himself who in holy wrath needed to be propitiated. God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation and God Himself who in the person of His Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. And so he continues on. So the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and put himself where man only deserved to be. This is propitiation. Jesus helps us by making propitiation. Like this is the big one. This is the heart of the gospel. But the heart of the passage, I think, is actually letter D. And it's this. Jesus compassionately helps in temptation. Jesus compassionately helps in temptation. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so I hope you do not read too fast here. Know what the text says. 
Jesus suffered when tempted. You see that? Jesus suffered when tempted. Like, I think sometimes as we think about the temptation of Jesus, yeah, I know he was tempted 40 days in the wilderness, but I mean, he's Jesus. It's not going to be hard for him. He's human. Fully human. He faces everything like we do. And so he compassionately helps us because he gets it. He's faced it. Jesus is not like the cancer doctor who prescribes a treatment plan for someone to get better. He's like our own Jason Swartz who, as a pediatric oncologist, sits down next to a child with cancer and gets it long before ever beginning to help because he was a child with cancer. Big difference there. Like, he understands, he experienced it. Jesus is that way, he identifies with us that way. He gets it, he did it, he suffered when tempted. And thus he understands that temptation is hard. Friends, make no mistake about it, the avoidance of sin, fighting temptation, sometimes is like a form of suffering. But it's a worthy suffering. Taking up your cross and dying daily following Jesus is worthy suffering. Jesus dying on the cross for us was worthy suffering. Like a, a, a lifestyle where your goal is just the avoidance of suffering and of, of never going through anything painful, anything difficult, anything like any level of disappointment, never having to tell yourself no. One, that's impossible. Two, it would force you, if you're never going to go through disappointment, never going to go through difficulty, never going to tell yourself no, never have to sacrifice for anything, you're going to miss out on so many amazing things. And then third, like you can't be a Christian with that as your goal. For to follow Christ is to invite suffering. For to say no to yourself and yes to Christ is hard at times. I mean, for those who are followers of Jesus and are same-sex attracted to for a lifetime say no to their desires and yes to Jesus, like that's going to feel like suffering. Taking up your cross daily, dying to yourself, dying to your inclinations, your sinful inclinations, and living for Christ instead. That's going to be hard. But Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. And Jesus helps you. You don't do it alone, but with aid from our compassionate older brother. who Hebrews 4 has been tempted in every way. As we have, yet without sin. And so understand that then. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, but he never sinned. Like every category of temptation you face, Jesus has faced sexual temptation, financial temptation, uh, lying to make it easier temptation, doubt temptation, fear and worry temptation, political temptation, laziness temptation, emotional temptation. Jesus was tempted in every categorical way, yet without sin. And so merely being tempted is not sinful. You want to know what is sinful? 
sin. Saying yes, giving in, that's the sin. Being tempted is not the sin. And so Douglas Moo rightly states, and maybe I need to share this one tomorrow because I think it's good. A sign of Christian maturity is not the infrequency of temptation, but the infrequency of succumbing to that temptation. You see the difference there? A sign of Christian maturity is not the infrequency of temptation, but the infrequency of succumbing to the temptation. And so as we fight our temptations, we do so because of letters A through C. Because Jesus destroys the devil. Because Jesus delivers from the fear of death. Because Jesus makes propitiation for our sins. And now, compassionately, because He gets it. Like, He helps us. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Like, it, we, we all face it. God is faithful. This is how He helps. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, God never tempts anybody. But even then, there's a leash, that limp that the devil has. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. That doesn't mean that it won't involve suffering. And until Jesus comes again, that does not mean that we will always get it right. Sometimes we will fall. I'm just being truthful. And that's where we have to go back to the gospel. That's where we have to go back to propitiation. That's where we have to go back and remember the good news. Because when we came to Christ, when we trusted in Jesus, at the moment of salvation, it had nothing to do with our own effort, but solely with the blood of Christ. And day by day, as you follow Jesus, it's not about your effort. It's the blood of Christ that covers us. Day by day. The gospel is not just your entry into salvation. It is everything after that. You constantly are going back to it. Constantly remembering that. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is you'll stumble, you'll fall, and you'll run from God. And you'll think, I've got to do something to clean myself up before I can talk to God. I've got to go pay my penance. I've got to live something out. Right? I've got to do enough good to overcome this bad. I've got to live clean enough, long enough, then maybe God will be willing to accept me again. And listen, I've done that. I've been there. And that's the most unbiblical thing ever. That's not the truth of the gospel. You remember the good news. Jesus paid it, not some, but all. All of it. And at that point, when He died for you, all of it was future sin. All of it. And He still died, knowing all of it. Our right standing has little to nothing to do with us and our own effort, but the blood of Christ. You've got to remember that. This is His goodness towards us. 
And so a sign of maturity then is that when you stumble and you fall, you don't run from God, but you run to Him. And you fall at His feet and praise His name in worship that I failed you again. How ridiculously good are you that you would still love me, still accept me, still forgive me, and still not be ashamed to call me brother or sister. You love me even now in this? How good are you, God? This is why Jesus is better. Who would love like this? This is why Jesus is better. He can actually help. Deliver us from our enemies. Aid us in temptation. And forgive us when we stumble. And so again, rest in the alreadiness. That's not a real word, but we're going to use Rest in the alreadiness of what Christ has done for you. Even as you hope in the not yet of what's to come. When we suffer with sin, no more. When we suffer with anything, no more. When death is, no more. Would you pray with me? Father, we need help. And you, triune God, can actually help. You help, Father. Jesus is able to help, as we've seen here. The Son. The Holy Spirit is called the Helper. Your Holy Spirit helps us. He aids us. And so... Father, we pray that you would aid us. You would help us with endurance. You would help us, aid us with fear. With the temptation to worry. Father, with our concerns about finances and provision and how am I going to cover this? With our kids, Lord, as we worry about them, as we're concerned about them, as we pray and yearn that You would save them, that You would rescue them, that, that, that You would be the passion of their lives, not the world. Help us. Help us as we're overwhelmed as we're stressed, as this pandemic drags on, as we are spoon-fed outrage, outrage, outrage. Help us to spit it out. Help us to live out the fruit of the Spirit, glorify You with our lives, resist temptation, look to You, And to remember always the good news of the gospel. That's not just for us. But for all those that you call to yourself. And so Father help us to be broadcast spreaders. Slinging that seed like from behind a tractor. In the name of Christ. Amen.